as our servers continue to, to collect um, the offering, and that is a great place to put your connection card. Um, you know, it is, we are uh, near the end of our camping season, although Youthquake is still up and coming. Um, but it's going to be good for us to just stop right now and to pray for our young people. Um, uh, Morgan either texted me or was in our group me or something like that, that 88 third through fifth graders plus sponsors uh, right now on their way to Sayokumo camp. And I, that was about the age that I remember going to camp for the first time and thinking, is this heaven? I loved it. I loved it. I still remember painting like my name on a rock and uh, kind of holding onto that rock to remember how, how much that week meant. And, you know, it's interesting. We, we talk about coming and how do we prepare for this incredible time. Yet the truth is, we can't live here all the time. We got to go out into the world. We can't live at camp all the time. Um, but we can make the most of those opportunities. And we can be aware of what's going on. And as a body, I think it is important for us to remember that these are critical times for our young people to come together and to, uh, to learn about who Jesus Christ is. There is something special about um, being in an intentional spot and focusing on who Jesus is. And so uh, I want to pray. I don't even know. I heard that total there'll be like about 400 uh, third through fifth graders. I don't even know if there'll be a Camp Sayokomo for us to go to for family camp. Uh, you get 400 third through fifth graders. I can only imagine the kind of devastation that's going to happen. But uh, more than anything, I'm excited to see what's going to happen. And I even want to be, pray be praying for our families, which will then be receiving these, whatever it is, 60, 70 young people that are going to be coming back, um, that we would receive them in homes that already have a gospel-centered uh, dedication to who Jesus Christ is. So let's, in honor of what God is about to do, um, let's pray for them. And so, God, I thank you for, uh, for Morgan, for her team, for the opportunity that they have to get away and to focus on you. Uh, God, I, I know that when these young people return, they're going to want to talk and talk and talk about camp. And I pray that their moms and dads would be ready to receive what you are doing in their lives. So, God, I thank you for opportunities that we have <laughs> I thank you for uh, special events like this. I pray we would know how to use them and how to treat them, uh, that we would experience the joy of them, and then that we would take seriously what it means to integrate those very critical and special moments into a regular, normal life. Help us. We need you to do this right. May as a church, may we not only support these young people for a good time, but may we help them see how it prepares them for a life of obedience to you. Uh, we need your help, so we ask knowing that you are good and gracious. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. We are in the middle of our series. If you have your Bibles, we're at the very end of Matthew chapter 13. Beginning in verse 44 is where we're going to pick it up. But literally, Matthew has 28 chapters. Um, the gentleman in the 1200s that decided to divide up the Bible into chapters. Originally, it didn't have chapters. And then later on, someone else divided it by verses. But would try to go through and to try to pick where there were normal breaks so that someone could read a chapter at a time. And um, the kind of, as there were, uh, was movement in the story as we moved from one place to another or one idea to another. Um, some gentlemen, they're not divinely inspired, but they put down chapters. So 28 
And I know that you would say, well, 14's the middle. I, I know if we were to go by numbers, but something is about to happen. You can even take a look. I don't mind you reading your Bible uh, outside of what we're doing, but take a look at chapter 14. What do you see? Chapter 14, verse 1. You can even read the heading at the beginning of that chapter. What's about to happen? Next Sunday, John the Baptist will be executed, which is interesting. Uh, you have to be almost a Christian to be this way, but we are going to celebrate his death. But what we just ate and drank, you should be used to that, right? We kind of get into that habit. So John is going to be executed, and as you even read the stories of Jesus and um, the kind of the, the message behind each of those stories, you, you recognize there's more and more opposition. Jesus is going to talk more openly, not what about the kingdom is like, although that is part of it, but he's going to talk more on honestly and openly. He's going to get more opposition. There's going to be more tension. He's going to talk about his death as he prepares to go to Jerusalem. There is something that seems to be happening as we tip from 13 into 14 and the rest of the book, which gives us a good time to just stop and to ask a question. You know, if we're roughly at the midpoint, we're going to add that next piece next Sunday. If we're roughly at the midpoint of this, then let me just ask this question, like, how is this changing you? Here's maybe a good way to do it. Raise your hand if somebody has accused you in the last, say, whatever it is, three, four, five, six months. Has anyone accused you of, of being different? Something about you is changing. Wait a second. I know what it is. You're more like Jesus. You've been reading Matthew, haven't you? I, I just see someone who is a peacemaker, someone who is, right? Has anybody been accused of being more like Jesus? Anyone? Bueller, Bueller. That's interesting. Me neither. No one's come up to me and said, you know, Jim, you just, have you been reading Matthew? Now, there's a couple of reasons. I'm not here to say, yeah, and shame on you. Shame on me for that. Maybe the problem, and I'm sure it's multifaceted, maybe the problem is that the way that spiritual growth happens, and this is the way the Bible describes it, it's like a tree growing. And it's hard to watch a tree grow. You don't really notice it, right? You don't notice it. Doesn't, it doesn't seem to grow like that. And that is a, a very powerful image or metaphor to what growth looks like in us. So, so maybe this, this transformation that is taking place in us is moving slowly. I'm, I'm, I, I get that. I totally get that. But there is transformation, right? Like we are becoming more like Jesus, right? At least we should be. That's what should be happening to us as we worship, as we eat, as we drink, as we study God's word, as we pray, as we then live our lives, not at camp, but the regular day by day. But what usually happens to us is that when we are going through life day by day, the day by day wears us down. The day by day just takes the edge off of us. And instead of us experiencing this amazing transformation, we get so caught up in the mundane that we fail to recognize what we have in God, particularly what we have in God in Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the power of his word, the gift of biblical community, and we just kind of go through life like it's, you know, life. And Jesus here at the end of these 
uh, the end of this list of parables, he has described a number of different things that the kingdom is like so that when the disciples are going out and preaching the gospel and experiencing life, that Jesus is already preparing them for what they are about to experience so that their lives, that their spiritual edge doesn't get worn thin or smooth or dull. It's just amazing how easy it is for us to just, ah, this is church. Oh, that's just the gospel. Oh, that's just communion. You been there? That's just communion. Quick, let's go. On to the next thing. Now you hold in your hands the body and the blood of our murdered Savior. Let us remember this gift that he has given. You realize what you had in your hands. And Jesus talks about the kingdom like that. Do you realize what you have? Do you realize what you have in your hands, in you? So if you look in the Bible, um, in verse 44, Jesus is going to give us in one verse a parable. One verse, one parable. As he continues to describe what the kingdom of God is like, verse 44, and, and here's, here's the basic idea, that you receiving the kingdom of God is more valuable and it is more important than you realize. Like, it's, it's more than you know. And this is what happens to us is we've heard that, even these parables you know, but we still fail to appreciate or fail to fully understand what it is that we have in Jesus. So he says this way, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, because he's so excited what he found, in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and he buys the field. He gives up everything that he has, and he's excited to do so because here's what he knows. What I now have, this treasure in the field, is worth more than everything that I had before. Do you look at your life like that? That now, since I have Jesus, everything that I had just pales in comparison to my life now. I mean, do you talk like that? Like, listen, man, I'll tell you, before I came to know Christ, man, my life was a mess. Really? Because I thought things were going well. Yeah, well, no, they were going well, but compared to what I have now in Jesus, like, we don't talk like that. That if anything, Christian people seem to talk like everybody else. Like, you know, I mean, I got kinda, I'm the same as them. I, I don't know Christian people who love to pretend, or maybe they're just being brutally honest, that they're just as bad as people who don't have Jesus. Again, I'm not talking about moral purity. I'm not talking about like a, a commitment for self-control. No, no, no. I'm talking about like what we have in Jesus. Paul says it's a deposit guaranteeing that one day he'll come back and that he'll rescue us. I, I'm not asking, do you struggle with a problem? If you're a Christian, you'll never struggle. No, I'm talking about did you know that what you have, the inheritance coming to you is worth more than all you have? See, that changes everything. First service, my wife and I, we're, 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 we're sitting there, and the songs are going on, and, I, and I'll have to be honest, I was holding her hand. Okay? We started like this, you know, and then we did the interlocking finger thing. And I'm sitting there singing this great song to God, and I'm thinking that my wife is awesome too. Right? And, and that's kind of what we do. I've got this great marriage, and I've kind of got this great family, and I'm really excited about where God is living, and, 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 and I got God, and all of these things, and do you know how to prioritize those? 
Do you realize what Jesus is saying? Let me, let me, let me see if I can, actually, I don't even think I can say it clear. Here's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's something that is worth giving everything in your life to. You come out ahead. If you give up everything that's in your life, it's more. And that's what Jesus is, is getting at. And that, I'll tell you, it's, it's important for us to realize that what Jesus is saying here is not, wow, you can buy God's love or you can buy God's favor or you can buy God's presence. You can buy, no, that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying is that do you understand what you have in Jesus? He goes on and he actually continues this idea in the next two verses, tells a very similar parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. And the implied is this, and yet he was still ahead. He was still ahead because what he had was worth more, what he now has is worth more than what he had. And, and, and listen, this is what it is now for you and I to do. For you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, and I'll say it again, I never assume that all of us are. But for those of us in this room who have given our life to Jesus, who have received the free gift of God's peace and God's forgiveness, God's restoration, God's Holy Spirit, that what we have is more than all the rest of our lives. And that's hard to fathom because if I could be honest with you, my wife seems more real. Can I, am I allowed to say this in church? Like my kids, my, my kids can be like, my, even my kids, okay, can be more tangible and real. I can find like greater value and worth in my children. And, and my like my job, my career, um, how I view myself. Like I get so much feedback all the time. It seems like it's so tangible. And then the kingdom of heaven is like this, um, I don't know, it's like an idea. And what Jesus is saying is, is that, that that's actually wrong. That what you actually have, and by the way, I hope you have a great spouse. I hope you have a wonderful children. I hope you have a, a, a really like a, more than success, I'll call it like faithfulness and God's, God's blessing upon your life. All of those things still pale under the incredible shadow of God's reign in your life, kingdom of heaven. Jesus as present in your life. And so often we're willing to get that backwards. We're willing to get all of this upside down. And then we wonder why we're struggling. We wonder why we're anxious. We're wondering why we're afraid that somehow it's all going to be taken away. And here's why. Because you and I hear about this treasure. We, we talk about the treasure in the field. We, we come and we even sing about it. I found a treasure in a field. And I didn't sell anything I have. And now I'm really anxious. But one day I might go sell everything or pretend to do. And someday I might go find that field and buy. The, probably not. I, I, those songs aren't very inspiring, are they? No, but somebody who does. Here's one thing I have found, just personally. I've, I've found that, like, the more Jesus, the king, and the kingdom of heaven, his kingdom, which is more than just, so much more than Sunnybrook, it's, um, I would even argue the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is even more than the church. It's God's reign in the world. And to be a part of that, I found this, 
like the more, I'll never use the words of Jesus. The more that I put my treasure there, the more that I put my attention there, the more that I invest there, the more that I sell here and I give there, the more I enjoy it there. Like the more I love that, the more that it it captures. Because here's the real question. How much does the kingdom of heaven capture of your gifts, abilities, and talents? Or are you saving that for corporate America? Your family? How about, how about your, own, um, your own family? Is that your family or are they, have they been entrusted to you for kingdom purposes? Right? So we don't even have to talk about money. That's just one aspect of it. Think of how so much more and what Jesus is describing is that those who, like disciples, followers, those who absolutely give over and surrender who are part of the kingdom, have more, have more when they have him. Well, I, I wish it would just stay this, because it's rather simple, right? I mean, the, the, are those parables complicated? No, they're just difficult to live out. Okay? We're working on that day by day, Sunday by Sunday, week by week, month by month, year by year. We're working towards, I'm trying to live as though those parables are true. That's what I'm doing. So my family and I are doing, we're trying to live like those parables are true. God, give me grace. God, be patient with me as I learn to live out what those parables describe. And then Jesus moves to this next section, this next parable. It's more than one verse, but Jesus is now going to describe not how great the kingdom is when you have it, but actually the cost of rejecting it. So not only is it the most incredible thing that you can have, but rejecting the kingdom is actually more costly than you realize. I know that like every Sunday, someone stands up here and and we preach a message about who Jesus Christ is and we offer at some level an invitation. Hopefully it lines up with the message. So today, in light of who Jesus is, I pray that you would give your life to him so that you could receive more than you already have. That's That's what we want. Okay, so that's what we're, we're, we're lining up here, okay? Um, and, and what we're learning in this next parable is that by going in your mind, in your attitude, in your habits, no thank you, or I'll do that later, or I'm going to put this off, that that actually is a more dangerous, more costly decision than you realize. And so Jesus continues to describe, because he's not just speaking to his disciples, but he's speaking to the crowds, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like, verse 47, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. And so it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into a fiery furnace. That place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here we have Jesus describing not the upside, and he went away and sold everything he had for great joy, and he had this treasure. No, now what he's focusing on is at the very end of time, those people who didn't sell, who never gained the pearl, who never gained that treasure, in the end, they they were going to buy it tomorrow. They were going to go back and get that later. And And what we actually see is Jesus giving a warning to his audience, which was common for the prophets, 
Today, that, now that you can hear my voice, today is the day of salvation. Therefore, respond as much as it is today. Respond to this challenge that you have. I've never really been one to say, you know, you really, especially you young people, you really need to make a decision to follow Jesus because a bus is going to kill you. You're going to go away to college and get run over by a bus. I've never been that guy. I actually kind of believe that like the great big huge um, insurance companies have it figured out and actually most likely almost every one of you is going to die at like 71-ish. Like that's what I, I mean honestly, right? That's the majority of us. We're going to live to a 71-ish. My concern is not that you're going to die young. My concern is that whatever age you're going to die without Jesus. Now, it's interesting that that idea of hell is a very complicated issue, and you know we could get wrapped up in the, do you believe it's a fiery place? I have no idea. I know that as a Canadian, it's difficult to talk about fiery hot places, because Canadians go, seriously, that sounds great, right? Any way to, any way to get out of the cold, what do I have to do to get there? So hell as a hot place is difficult for a Canadian to comprehend. A lot of the idea of this actually may spring from a very real place, the Valley of Gehenna, which is on the lower part of Jerusalem, where for very many years they would actually burn garbage and sacrifice their children in fire. And it was this place that would uh, kind of at the very bottom of what would be the old city and was still very much around even during the times of Christ, the Valley of Gehenna. This place where there's just this burning of flesh. A lot of that imagery of hell, which I believe is a very real place, comes from that. I don't know if it's eternal fire. I do believe it's eternal separation from God, which just sounds like hell to me. Just sounds like hell. I love actually the idea of this gnashing of teeth. That's what I find most interesting. You know what it is? You know what it is to gnash your teeth? See, I used to think it was like grinding your teeth. Right? Like you're mad. No, that's really not the gnashing of teeth. You know what the gnashing of teeth is? Have you ever done this? Have you ever done this? Oh, I can't believe I did that. Have you ever done that? Have you, have you ever, like, literally, like, tightened up your jaw because you're so, I can't believe I did that. Have you ever done that? That's it. That's the gnashing of teeth. It's not grinding them. No, it's, oh. Can you imagine the eternal, oh, and no going back? Oh, that's it. In light of now that I see who Jesus is, in light that it's now the end of the age, oh. That's why age isn't really the issue. It's what you do with today, no matter how old you are. And I actually even get concerned for older people who have really grown into this habit. And I think this is one of the dangers of church because church becomes one of those places where I believe we can become inoculated to what God is doing in the world, particularly through Jesus Christ. There can be like this lulling us into this safety, this feeling like everything is okay which actually fits really well with his audience because Jesus is talking to a bunch of people who have consistently believed in their own minds and in their own hearts and by their own practices that they're okay with God and that God is okay with them. But what they never really did was they never like dealt with Jesus. They, they thought they could bypass him and just deal with God and Jesus is now saying, you're gonna have to deal with me. 
You're going to have to deal with me. And this is why Jesus does a whole lot more than just present like a case. Like I got my white, I love whiteboards. And I'm going to write down five important things that I need you guys to do. Okay, I'm going to write them down and that's who I am. I'm, I'm five great principles. I mean, this is the problem when Christianity isn't something that you're living out. Where it's not a, a, a habit of regularly meeting God and praying to God and depending upon God and trusting God. Where it's just an idea. I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to try to be nicer. I'm going to try to be kinder. It's not a relationship. It's, it's more of an idea. And, and, and Jesus isn't this whiteboard expert. He's not offering tips and techniques. Jesus is offering us the reality of himself and saying, fall on me, trust in me, be devoted to me. Do you see the difference? And when you have him, it's of great value. And when you reject him, it is more costly than you realize. But remembering that truth, by the way, then makes the moments of Holy Spirit angst, the Holy Spirit movement, the, the, the conviction whether that's the conviction to give your life to Christ, the conviction to recognize who he is, or for someone who's been following Jesus for a long time and still struggling with following Jesus, okay? Still walking through that journey. It's good for me to remember that I, I, I'm not, I really don't, I'm not at all in, in, in fear of hell. But in light that there are some who are, and some who are very close to me who are, then I need to care about the decisions that they make. I need to care about the direction that they are going in. Like I'm really not worried at all about gnashing teeth because I know who Jesus Christ is and I, I trust him with my sin problem. So I have peace with God. But my brother-in-law Curtis does not. And I've got some close friends who do not. And that's why it's interesting that Jesus, as he is describing the kingdom of heaven, isn't just talking about it in this detached way. He is preparing these disciples to be his ambassadors, to be his um, missionaries, which are really just Christians on the move. Christians living out their life in Jesus Christ. Not with a whiteboard, but with a life. And Jesus, steering, directing, heading that, Speaking the truth about what life in him looks like. And speaking the truth in such a way, and we're going to come across this in a couple of weeks. Matthew chapter 16. This is how valuable Jesus is over everything else. Jesus asks this question. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? What is a man going to give in return for his soul? And the answer to that is there is nothing worth more than a soul. And I would argue to God. And that is why he gave you Jesus and a path of peace and forgiveness. And that is why we talk about him with those in danger uh, of a life of regret an eternal life of regret. And so Jesus continues on in verse 51. I find this fascinating, is that now in this short parable-ish type statement, 
he is going to describe this really important thing that's like a treasure, and it is, it is like this sorting of fish, actually has been entrusted to his disciples, to his followers. Now, when I say entrusted, it's not like Jesus is leaving, although he's going to be leaving, but he's not going to leave them as orphans. Jesus, Jesus didn't say, well, I just believe so much in Jim, and I believe so much in Paul, and I believe so much in you know, us, that, that God, he so believes in us that he is going to just trust us with his mission. Now, that's really not a biblical way to describe it at all. But that God, in his sovereignty, through his spirit, and through his word, and through us, He is going to continue his plan. And notice what Jesus now says as he describes what this kingdom is going to be like. He says this in verse 51. Have you understood all these things? And the disciples say yes, which means they kind of get them. I know what you're talking about, but I don't know what it's like to live that out. I don't know what it's like to live like that in the midst of opposition. Have you understood? They said to him yes. And he said, therefore, every scribe, like an expert, everyone who is devoted and dedicated, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And what Jesus is getting at here, I believe, is that Jesus is describing what the Bible teaches, which is that God does not do plan A and then plan B and then plan C. What we have been teaching here for many, many years that Jesus is not God's new version of himself. It's not God of the Old Testament and then God 2.0, right? It's not a new version of the iPhone, not at all. God actually is always had Jesus as the plan. He's always had Jesus as the direction. And now from the old, which isn't a bad thing, amen, for those of us who are getting old, right? By the way, that would be all of us. So as we, it's, there is new that is coming out of, that is birthing from this so that God can reveal. And this is what the disciples, this is what, what we as followers of God have an opportunity to share. I'm not here making stuff up. I'm not here just trying to, hey, we got a whole new, no, no, no. It is new fulfillment. It is new God in Christ. It is new, but it is from the old. I've really come to this understanding. The more I actually went back and read as the church tried to wrestle with this question, do we let Gentiles into the church? Which, as a Gentile, I'm really grateful for, to be honest with you. Okay? That's a non-Jew, for those of you who don't know what a Gentile is. Non-Jew, right? Raise your hand if you're a Gentile. Yeah, yeah, we got in. Yeah! You know how they figured it out? The Holy Spirit in them knew. Gave them convictions, gave them Cornelius, gave them a vision from heaven. And then you know what they did? They went back to the Old Testament and said, was it in here? And they found it in the Old Testament. They found it verse after verse after verse saying that God was going to do this. And so they looked at the power of the new, the fulfillment, the spirit, the leading. And they went back and they found in the old. And this is what the disciples of Jesus did. Was they stood as this... Not, not, not a stop gas, but as a stop gap, but as actually ambassadors, as messengers, as testimony givers, as witness bearers of this amazing truth that the God of the old is actually the God of fulfillment and of the new. And this is what we get to do. I've really enjoyed that actually. I love that sharing that what God is doing in Jesus Christ is has been God's plan from the very beginning. I take great, can I say I take great comfort in that. I'm always leery of like people that come up and say, hey, you've been getting it wrong forever. I've got a new way. 
Really? Forever? Like you figured out what no one else in the history of the world could ever figure out? I think you're nuts. That's never Jesus. It's never even Jesus. Now hear me, that's Muhammad, right? That's, that's, that's Joseph Smith. There are a number of others that talk about, ta-da, I got a new idea. You know what Jesus was? Ta-da, I'm the ultimate of all of God's ideas. Do you see the difference? On the road to Emmaus, there are some disciples that are listening to him, and it seems like Jesus hid the reality of who he was from them. And Luke describes it like this. He's the only one that describes this encounter. And then he took from the scriptures, and he began to teach from the scriptures, from the old, who he was. And then something happens, and they recognize him, and Jesus leaves. I find that fascinating. Because if I was Jesus, I would have went, look at me. Hands and feet, side, look at this. And Jesus, yeah, but I'm leaving. Look at this. From the old, there is new. And Jesus is saying to these disciples, I'm not here to break from tradition. I am here to give meaning and purpose to all tradition. And that's what Jesus teaches. It's it's amazing for us to think that God has, through the disciples, this long chain, he is now entrusted to us. Because, by the way, what what I'm always a little concerned about is that you guys are going, man, Okay, well, Jim, God gave that to you. No, he didn't give it to me alone. He gave it to us. He gave it to those who follow him. He gave the truth about the treasure that we have and the truth about those who reject. He gave the truth about our calling to bring from the old, new, and God has given all of that to us. Okay. So what can we expect? Well, we can actually expect what... uh, what the other disciples should expect. Look at verse 53. Here's ultimately what we're going to actually find out. We are going to find out that in moments like this, when it just seems like onward and upward, where it seems like we're just going to be moving forward, Jesus now described, who doesn't want the treasure? Right? Like, if I could, if I could give you something that was worth more than all of what you have, how many of you wouldn't give up what you have? You all would. The question is, you have to believe that is actually worth more than everything that you have. And as Jesus is describing this, this is the part that really, um, it's, it, it's like Jesus isn't just this teacher. He is such an important figure in human history as God enters into himself, into human history and human form, that what we find in the person of Jesus Christ is that he both offends and amazes people. See, this is... This is what's different. I mean, this is why it's more than just an idea. What Jesus is, is he is this watershed figure in human history which forces you to pick. Jesus says, um, forcefully, kindly, truthfully, deal with me. Like you've got to deal with me. Because one day you will deal with me. So deal with me. Taste and see that my teachings are good and that my yoke is easy. Taste and find the life that I have for you. He offers us life. And what amazes me is how often people say no 
And, 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 and nice people say, no, thank you. But by the way, there is no difference when it comes to Jesus between no and no thank you. So look at how this text ends, verse 53. And when Jesus had finished saying these parables, all the stories about the kingdom, which by the way, there's going to be weeds among the wheat. Um, most of it's going to be rejected, but some of it's going to grow great. Uh, there will be a day in which I'll sort out the weeds and the wheat. I'll sort out the fish. It's more valuable than you ever know. Some people won't ever experience the joy of having that value. When Jesus finished all of those parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, and they were astonished. Wow, look at Jesus, they said. Where did this man get his wisdom in these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Answer implied in the Greek, yes. Is not his mother called Mary? Yeah, I know who she is. And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and are not his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? And you can tell that where this is going, that they're not ready to embrace him at all. They're astonished. They're not there to argue. Even when we were in Israel, I was amazed with the number of people who still did not follow Jesus, were not even questioning by any stretch of the imagination his mighty works. Our guide, a committed Jewish man, had no problem admitting that Jesus did miraculous things. He believed it, just didn't believe he was Messiah, just didn't believe he was God in flesh, Emmanuel. And here's what they did. Verse 57, and they took offense at him. The word offense actually is a very interesting word. You'll, you, you'll be able to pick it up. If I say to you in the Greek, it's scandalon, like scandalous. Jesus is scandalous. The scandal of Jesus. Now, I'm kind of, this is where I get a little bit excited about the day that we now live in. Because I, I grew up in a time where Jesus was so cute and cuddly and so not offensive that all Jesus wanted to do was help you have the, your best life now. Okay, that's all. That's, I, I'm here, I'm Jesus, what do you want? What can I do for you? Big puffy Santa Claus guy, right? coming out of a time where Jesus was this angry cop guy. And I'm kind of glad that we now live in a time, at least it appears to me, that Jesus is becoming scandalous again. That there really is something that is, um, that is uh, offensive in what he's teaching. This is why I never understood why Christian people want to soften him or why Christian people get mad that people find Jesus offensive. Jesus' own hometown found him offensive. Why are you trying to water down? Why are you trying to take away? Why are you trying to somehow make Jesus marketable or palatable to an audience that may not want him on his terms? I, I, I do. I, I think that it's a good time to be a Christian. Because I think what has really caused some problems with us is that we have not felt the natural grind, the natural resistance of what it means to be a follower of Christ in a culture that isn't really interested in following Christ. After coming out of a time when a culture decided, let's pretend we follow Christ. And they found, they were offended by him and I love this. Jesus gives a statement. We, we don't know really where it comes from. 
but it's definitely a biblical truth. A prophet is not without honor. It means everywhere a prophet goes, everybody loves him, except in his own, own hometown, in his own household. Now there he's talking specifically about his hometown. They know my mom, they know my upper, they know the story about how my mom had me, they know all of that. I'm, I'm not following their stories, I'm not following their rabbis, and so here, they're just put out by me. One of my favorite passages of scripture is actually found in John chapter one. I use this a lot, by the way. You should almost have it underlined by now. John chapter one, so this is in the very beginning of John's story. He says something that I want you to hear, and I really, verses 10 through 13, I want you to even underline them and keep going back to them whenever you wonder, like, why is it that when I share the gospel, people say no? And why is it that when I bring up Jesus' name, people feel creeped out by it? John says it this way, verse 10. He, that's Jesus, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So he came into his own, and his own people did not receive him. Like they rejected him, they despised him, they murdered him. But to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What John is saying, and what Matthew is saying, because Jesus is talking, is that Jesus and the work that he does in us is so powerful and divine that what we actually have is not just human thinking and human interaction, but it is God's power over us. And that's what it means to be a follower of him. It doesn't mean that your life is easy. No, it actually means that your life is hard. It doesn't mean that you won't be offensive or even sometimes offended. But what it does mean is that you have peace with God through Jesus Christ because you've dealt with him. And by God's grace, you know who he is. You know the treasure that you have. You know what is at stake. And you buy the field. You give sacrificially, not because you can purchase, but because it just seems like the most natural thing to do, to invest in this great thing called the kingdom of heaven. Let me word it this way, and you can write it down, my sermon in a sentence. We as followers of Jesus Christ, should value the kingdom above all else and be faithful stewards and servants of the mission that has been entrusted to us no matter what the cost, because there will be opposition. There will be opposition. And, and yet it is worth it because of who Jesus Christ actually is. Because Jesus doesn't use a whiteboard, in fact... Jesus truly is one of those watershed people. There's just no way that you can sit on the fence when it comes to Jesus. See, what happens when you and I, or all of us together, approach Jesus? There's just no way to stay there, is it? Like Jesus literally divides us. Isn't that amazing? Like you can't be on both sides, and you can't straddle the middle. So in the end, what happens, Jesus, the watershed person of all human history, he stands there, and the truth about him, the reality of him, like divides us, separates us. Sheep and goats, weeds and wheat, good fish and bad fish. 
disciples, there's just no way to live at the top. Just no way. And in the end, they're gathered, and they will be dealt with. I'm just humbled by the reality of who he is. And I'm also um, aware of the cost of pretending that you're not making a decision when, in fact, you already have. And I pray that we understand that God's loving nature is not to separate us, but God, in his natural form, in the power of his name, just does. And I pray that when you have heard or continue to hear the truth about Jesus Christ, that you fall into him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the reality of Jesus. And I'm not even going to assume that every one of us gets that, but I do know that you love every one of us. And that, God, the Bible is clear that you desire all, desire all to be saved, and that is the reason why you have delayed your coming. And yet, may we never take today for granted. May we never take the Spirit's activity in our heart for granted. So as long as it is called today, which that is exactly when it is, may we deal with Jesus. Father, in this room, for those who have fallen on the right side of him, may we have joy and peace. May we have life. May we live it to the abundant full. May we have a confidence and an assurance of the hope that we have in Jesus. And Father, for those who have decided to postpone or pretend or to delay, May they hear your call back to yourself. It's through Jesus, the watershed moment of all human history that we pray these things. Amen. And that is why we would love to continue this faith conversation. And if you don't want to talk to one of us, you can talk to someone else that you know and that you trust. Just talk to someone and find out the truth about Jesus and experience the life that he has for you. Love you guys. God bless. We're down here if you want to talk. See you next Sunday.